Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. It's Curious City, where we take your questions about Chicago and the region and investigate, report, explore from WBEZ. Sophia Madden grew up in Minneapolis. And Chicago was the main big city that my family would visit on vacation. She remembers long, boring seven-hour drives when she was a kid, and then seeing Chicago's skyline with the John Hancock Center looming over it. And that was the dominating force and the surge of excitement that my brothers and I would feel, um, knowing that we were so close to the city. Her family stayed near the Hancock. They shopped nearby at the Lego and American Girl stores. They usually made it to the top for the view. But she never knew too much about the building itself. Um, My question was, why is the John Hancock building so important to Chicago's history? Well, Sophia, the John Hancock Center, now officially known as 875 North Michigan, but whatever, the John Hancock Center isn't merely important to Chicago. It's important to city skylines across the world. When it was completed 50 years ago, it totally changed what architects thought was possible. It's got a great story featuring two young immigrants, architect Bruce Graham, originally from Colombia, and a visionary structural engineer from Bangladesh, Fazlur Khan. But before we get to them, a little about the architecture in cities before the John Hancock Center. The early 20th century had been a boom time for skyscrapers. Every few years, a new world's tallest building would go up, culminating in the Empire State Building at 102 stories in 1931. And then the boom stopped, partly because of the Great Depression and World War II, and another reason. So there was conventional wisdom that said buildings as tall as the Empire State Building weren't really feasible or weren't really economic anymore. This is Thomas Leslie, professor of architecture at Iowa State University. He says architects believe while you could build extremely tall buildings, it just didn't make sense because of the cost. If you double the size of a skyscraper, you're not just doubling the amount of concrete or steel that you're putting into it. You're actually tripling the amount or maybe even quadrupling the amount. The reason for this tripling or quadrupling has to do with the building's structures. You can think of their structures as their skeletons that keep them from collapsing or blowing over in the wind. Back in the 30s and 40s, to make buildings taller, they just added more and more structural materials. This got so inefficient that it could actually be cheaper to build three 50-story buildings than one 100-story building. And that's why about 50 stories was considered the practical limit for building height. But in the 1950s and 60s, the economy was booming. Developers were investing in office buildings and apartments to meet high demand, and architects had this idealistic vision of efficient and dense cities with affordable high-rises. A new city in the making with clean new apartments, a planned environment. So in the 1950s and 60s, there was a lot of interest in figuring out how to build taller buildings efficiently, like 90- or 100-story buildings. 
And this is when architect Bruce Graham and engineer Fazlur Khan began their careers. Khan grew up in Bangladesh. As a child, he was very playful and enjoyed people and very sociable. This is Yasmin Sabina Khan, Fazlur's daughter, also a structural engineer. She says as a schoolboy, her father rebelled against the conventional ways of doing things, wrote memorization, multiplication tables. Instead of punishing young Fosler Khan, his father, a mathematician, gave him puzzles to solve. He learned from him how to be inspired by problems, uh, trying to solve questions. And that interest and joy from solving a problem made his approach engineering different than it might have been otherwise. Khan came to the U.S. to get a Ph.D. in engineering at Champaign-Urbana. After that, he heard about an up-and-coming architectural firm in Chicago, Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, or SOM. According to legend, he walked into SOM on a whim one day, and within a few minutes, they offered him a job. And he very quickly became seen as a, a sort of prodigy. Architecture professor Thomas Leslie again. This young kid who's just out of school and who's able to solve all of these steel detailing problems in particular that none of the older engineers at SOM seemed able to, to figure out. At SOM, Khan worked with Bruce Graham on a series of building projects in the early 1960s. Usually the architect was the dominant partner, but Graham, the architect, treated Kahn, the engineer, as an equal design partner. In 1962, they were working on a design for the Chestnut DeWitt Apartments, a 43-story building in Chicago. Graham challenged Kahn to come up with the most efficient structure for the building possible, something that maximized the floor space and minimized the building materials, so it cost less to build. And Khan came up with a completely new way to structure a building. He called it a framed tube structure. I'm going to try to explain it, and it's going to get a little tricky, but if you stick with me for a minute, I promise it's pretty neat. See, as I said earlier, tall buildings relied on a bunch of columns inside the building to hold up all of those stories, sort of like a skeleton. But these columns took up a lot of space, which meant less space for offices and apartments. What Khan realized is you could take all of those columns on the inside of the building and move them to the walls. So you have more columns on the outside and very few on the inside. So now it's like the building has an exoskeleton. But Khan called this new type of structure a tube. And the logic here is really simple. The the best shape for a column to resist buckling is a hollow tube. I'm not sure why that is, but a hollow tube is a very strong structure vertically. Think of a steel pipe or a bamboo shaft. Now it turns out when you move the columns from the inside to the outside, making the building a tube, you don't actually need as many columns. In fact, you need way fewer columns, which means it's cheaper. It redefined what engineers thought was possible or how much they thought a a skyscraper should or could cost. Kahn and Graham used variations of this tube idea for a series of buildings in Chicago and Houston in the early 1960s. All considered efficient and innovative, but they were still relatively short. 43 stories was the tallest. But then, in 1964, a rich developer named Jerry Woolman came to SOM. He wanted to build two high-rise buildings on the same lot. One would be an office building, the other residential. He bought land north of downtown Chicago, near the water tower, and SOM assigned Bruce Graham, just 41 years old, as the lead architect of this important project. 
Graham liked the idea of a mixed-use development, but he had a problem. Graham was never happy with having two buildings on the site. He thought that it made the plan really crowded. He didn't think there would be views. So Graham thought, what if instead of two, they built just one building, with the offices on the bottom and the apartments on top? That would solve that crowding problem. But it would raise another problem, which was the two buildings stacked together would be 100 stories, the second tallest building in the world, actually, which conventional wisdom said would be way too expensive. But Kahn told Graham the conventional wisdom was wrong. They could design a 100-story building that wasn't expensive. It would just need a unique structure. Like their other projects, most of the columns would be on the outside, making the building a hollow tube structure. Because the building was going to be more than twice as tall as their other projects, it would need giant diagonal braces, or trusses, that would make the outside of the building even stiffer and stronger. Diagonal trusses were used all the time in railroad bridges, but almost never applied to high-rise buildings. And the building would taper from a wider base to a narrower top. And these three all combine, they they get put together into one form. So it's a tube structure that's trussed and that's also shaped to resist the wind really well. And they come up with a, a scheme that is like twice as efficient as any other skyscraper near to its size. So this young architect engineer team told their bosses and the developer that this whole idea for two buildings wasn't going to work. But don't worry, because they had a plan to break with common sense and build the tallest building anybody had constructed in 40 years, 100 stories, using a structural system never before seen in any building. Yes, it's unimaginable to me, actually. Yasmin Sabina Khan, again. Why would a design firm want to to introduce a completely new structural concept for a building of 100 stories that just is still amazes me. And my father was 35 or so. So, in 1965, construction began on the most ambitious skyscraper in Chicago's history up to that point. And a lot was riding on this. Some architects were skeptical of what Kahn was claiming, that you could build a 100-story building at less than half of what the Empire State Building cost. The project would be a test which is why Fosler Khan later referred to what happened next as the disaster. He remembered it as being a Sunday morning that he got this call from the site, and the contractor said, come immediately. There was a problem. The new construction, just a few beams and columns, had shifted, just slightly, less than an inch. There shouldn't have been any movement at all. And it was completely puzzling to everybody how there could have been this measurement. And for the most part, everybody said, this must be an error. It's just one reading. The contractor wanted to ignore it and keep building. But Khan realized this meant there might be a serious problem with the foundation, one that could lead to the building sinking into Chicago's swampy soil. So not only was this a safety issue, the reputation of his design was at stake. So he stopped the job on this 100-story construction project. Khan insisted they test the building's entire underground concrete foundation. And sure enough, they found structural gaps in the concrete that could have ruined the building. The testing and the later repairs slowed down the project by months and drove the costs up. It essentially bankrupted the original developer. Woolman had to leave the project. 
But Woolman's financial partner, the John Hancock Insurance Company, stuck with the project despite the ballooning costs. They completed the John Hancock Center in 1969, and it quickly filled with tenants who liked it. It did have a few quirks, like the top would sway in heavy winds. Oh, yeah. I mean, the motion was definitely perceivable. This is architecture journalist Nick Green. His parents actually lived in the Hancock. There was a woman on one of the upper floors whose chandelier would sway back and forth. And so Khan himself went and kind of bolted that and braced it to the, the ceiling so it would stop swaying. Remember, our question asker Sophia asked why the John Hancock Center is important. And obviously, it's an iconic part of Chicago's skyline. But consider, the Hancock was a trailblazer. It was the first 100-story building in 40 years. Since then, in the last 50 years, there have been 19. All because Kahn and Graham proved it could be done efficiently. Before he died in 1982, Fosler Kahn liked to walk near the Hancock. According to his daughter Yasmin, he loved listening in as people pointed up at the building and talked about the design. Special thanks this week to Bill Baker and Skidmore Owings and Merrill for research assistance. Thanks to the Ryerson Burnham Library for access to Fosler Khan's memoir and to Adam Gilgore at 360 Chicago. Catherine Nagasawa is Curious City's multimedia producer. Alexandra Solomon is our editor. Mackenzie Crossan is our intern. Monica Eng is our team's dedicated reporter. Support for Curious City comes from the Conant Family Foundation. I'm Jesse Dukes. Next time on Curious City, the city of Chicago has gotten more calls and reports about potholes than last year, a 20% increase. And they are showing themselves. Sometimes the entire length of a block will be riveted with potholes. It's like it's like there, you know, a series of little bombs fell on the street. And if a pothole damages your car or your bike, you may be able to get reimbursed by the city. But it's not easy. That's next time on WBEZ's Curious City. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. A Rundown podcast has all of that and it's Chicago based. So you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown.